Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 20. I do have the passage there on the outline. We're looking at verses 13 through 27, really 17 in earnest, because the first verses are um, a quick synopsis, a summary of months and months of ministry and travel, um, just covered in a few verses that lead into this episode that we are studying or beginning to study this Sunday morning in Acts 20. This is the chapter that contains a powerful exhortation to the church, the leadership in Ephesus. All of Scripture is applicable. There are some sections that are even more pointed, though, especially with regard to their timelessness and what it teaches us now uh, for the purpose of the church, how to conduct leadership, how to minister in the church, the purpose of ministry in general. And this exhortation found in this chapter really speaks loudly to us. I hope we recognize this. Now we'll see it as it comes. This is Paul starting to give an exhortation to the elders or the pastors or the overseers of the Ephesian church, that church he loved so much, almost three years spent there ministering. So now he's ready to leave and he knows he'll never see them again. He'll either die or he'll keep going further and never be able to return to Ephesus to see those people. He calls just the elders to himself so he can give them an exhortation. And we'll study the beginning of that exhortation, the the preamble, you might say, or the the introduction that Paul gives. And in the introduction, uh, he does two things. He basically reminds them again of the central message, which is the purpose of the church, Christ. And then he, in different ways of explaining his ministry, reminds them how it came, um, the sacrifice it took, um, the the boldness it took, the, the, the lack of hesitation that he had about the truth, because that will be the model that the church should follow. Um, the elders of the church will gather their example from Paul, who gathered his example from Christ, and then we collectively live out this apostolic ministry. And so it's very important for us to study this passage carefully to understand even the purpose for our church today. So I will begin reading at verse 13 and read down to verse 27 of Acts chapter 20. I'll ask you to have that passage open. I'll refer to it often throughout our time together. Please hear the word of the living God. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailed from there, sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and to Greeks 
of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Let us bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, as we read uh, the Apostle Paul's inspired words, may they impact us with the same conviction as the first audience uh, had, those elders and pastors, the overseers of the church in Ephesus. May, as we read your word, uh, be deepened in our faith in Christ. Lord, please spark a zeal, a zeal for you that makes us grow our, in our trust towards you. Lord, sanctify us by your truth, for your word is truth. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So verse 17 gives us the setup for what's coming over the next few weeks as we walk through this passage together. From Miletus, 20 to 30 miles away from Ephesus, from Miletus, it says in verse 17, he sent to Ephesus, sent a word to Ephesus, and called the elders of that church to come out to him. So it took them some time to get there. Chapter 20 then contains this exhortation. Now before we walk through the exhortation starting in verse 17, I want you to see something on a high level that might help you with uh, interpreting the whole of it. So bear with me as I walk you through a few key statements that will help you better appreciate the single-mindedness of Paul that is intended to take hold of the church. It's his single message that he extrapolates on when he teaches for hours and hours and hours like he does. But that singular message, he gives four different ways throughout this opening preface, and I want you to see it. He wants the message to be clear, and he wants the elders there to see what it took to bring the message so that they would believe again afresh and be compelled to follow that apostolic example. So look at the passage with me quickly. At verse 21, please notice what he speaks of. It says in verse 21, testifying to both the Jews and the Greeks, what? What does he testify? Repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he reminds them under great cost that he brought this message of repentance towards God and faith in Christ. Now, go down a couple verses to verse 24. The ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, what is that ministry? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says the same thing. Do you notice it? It's, it's Christ. I mean, Christ is the subject of both these things. Um, to turn from sin unto God can only be through Christ, by faith in Christ. Um, in verse 24, what is he there to do? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What is the grace of God? It's Christ. Verse 25 now. None of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming, proclaiming what? Proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. What's the kingdom he's proclaiming? The same one Jesus came to proclaim 
Now he is proclaiming it in its fulfillment through Christ. So again, he came to preach, to teach, to point to Christ. I say this because the church has to stay single-minded on this. There are many things we will do because we're Christians. But make no mistake about the simplicity of the mission of the church. It's the, it's the pronouncing of this message of the gospel so that we believe afresh and other people can come to know. And then from that, the church can do a great many things to help. But we shouldn't confuse those other things in with the singular message that the apostle is laying out for us. He does it another time. Look at verse 26. As this section of the intro closes, you might say, declaring to you what? Declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, when Paul says the whole counsel of God, he means to say Christ. They had the revelation of the Old Testament, the counsel of God, the holy counsel of God, the counsel of the holy. Now he can give the whole counsel because Christ has come and fulfilled the Old Testament. And in this time frame, the New Testament is being written under the apostles. Now when we speak of the whole counsel of God, we mean the whole of the Scriptures. And Christ is the message of the whole of the Scriptures. So four times throughout this intro, he's being careful to remind them of the simplicity of their message. When he sends the elders back to Ephesus to go lead the church, what is he leading them in? You guys got to go change the culture. You guys got to go get different people elected. You got to go do this and take care of this cause or that. Now listen, Christians can engage themselves and they should engage themselves. But that's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is the gospel. In the clear pronouncement of that gospel, with carefulness about it, to be clear so people can know. The ultimate question every human being needs to know is, how can I be right with the God who's made me? And so the church is given this incredible stewardship in the word of God, and the apostle wants to make sure that the Ephesian elders are ready to go back and lead in this way. And he does so by re mentioning the message itself in four different ways of putting it, and then mentions to them, hey, by the way, have you seen what it takes to do this? So this together, the way it was preached and what was preached, will compel them to believe afresh and then to share that. Put another way, this powerful and clear message from Paul about the gospel was meant to compel the Ephesian elders to be strengthened in their belief and then to follow his apostolic example when shepherding the flock at Ephesus. To put it more particularly, particular to us, the powerful witness of the apostles, Paul in this case, but the apostles agree across the board, the powerful witness of the apostles about the person of Christ compels us to believe and follow in their mission. Notice Paul's deliverance of the gospel with me in three different ways as it's outlined for you. First of all, the way he delivers the gospel um, is in, in, itself, in and of itself an encouragement about the gospel. He delivers it with a humble, sacrificial transparency. It's such an important message that he could be humbled. Even a man who had all sorts of reasons to be proud would be humbled by bringing the gospel. It would cost him a great deal. He would sacrifice much. And all the while, he's living right with the people. Um, there's no way that they could deny um, that his life was in connection to his message. He didn't just go into a stadium that you pay ticket price for, preach a, preach a message, and slip out the back. The Apostle Paul has now left the building. There's not that. That's not how the Apostle lived in his time with the Ephesians or anywhere that he ministered. The gospel was delivered with humble, sacrificial transparency. Verse 17, he called the elders of the church to come to him, this personal meeting with those leaders. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you. 
You yourselves, he's calling them to be witnesses about what he says. It's true that you know I I walked right with you. I, I lived right with you. You saw my whole life. You know it. You saw it yourself. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. He lived among those he ministered to. This is what made him powerful as a shepherd. This is what made him effective and fruitful. They saw him up close firsthand. He wasn't above them. He was one of them. He lived in total view of the flock. And this is the example he's setting for the apostle or the elders, the overseers, the pastors, all synonymous terms for the same function in the church. We'll see that unfold in the weeks to come. But to the elders in general, follow this example essentially is what he's saying. And he's also saying, because you've seen it, you can trust what I'm saying. His ministry was the epitome of transparent, everything right in front of him. And you know, we ought to be careful in leadership, um, everything from parent to child, to be very personal and spend personal time with, to leaders in the church or leaders at large, that we would be accessible, that we would be approachable, that we would have opportunity to not just stand up and preach or teach or be in a position of authority and speak, but also with one another, walking with one another, this walk we're talking about and preaching concerning. That's Paul's example, and he calls them to remember that, which gives more power to the message he preaches. They see how practical it is and how it applies. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul's transparency made him vulnerable to the flock. Antagonism arose. He was constantly facing opposition. If you have ever dealt with somebody who disagrees with you, if you're in a position at your job or it could be in your family, it could be in some organization where you're leading something and generally things are going okay, but you know how it is. There could be, say, a hundred people and people could be appreciative of what's happening, but maybe one or two have a serious problem. Maybe you really have offended them. It could be a legitimate reason. Whatever the case, it feels terrible. Of the unrest you feel, it's difficult to function. Well, imagine if plots were made up, conspiracies were conjured up to to fight everything you're saying and preaching and teaching, like Paul experienced. It reduced him to tears. It was difficult. It was sacrificial, and it was humbling. It was humiliating. Really, a man of his his credentials in every facet, both from from his, his secular work to his knowledge as a scholar, all these things, and yet he was plotted against and humbled and reduced many times to tears over the attacks that came upon him. The point is, he kept preaching the gospel, though. He brought it even in the midst of this humbling. You know, many people, the first criticism they get, they quit whatever they're leading. Uh, this was not an option. The, God, the Lord God gave him this commission, and so he preaches this gospel, delivers it with humble, sacrificial transparency, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to him. You know, the feature of humility in leadership, in all of us for that matter, we know this. Um, that feature is hard to come by, and we all want it, but you and I both know it often comes by hard knocks. And that's true even in the Apostle Paul's life. Um, he had all manner of things opposing him, and something in particular he kept asking the Lord to take away, but the Lord kept it in his life. He wrote to the Corinthians, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that's, that access, that special access he had, it could have made him arrogant, A thorn in the flesh was given, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, and here's the key, my grace is sufficient for you. You can hold up under whatever this is. My power, God says, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So his boldness in the gospel is because he knows it cannot be anything he does that makes a person believe. Nothing he does can save a person. It's got to be all of God. And so this is a point, uh, his pride comes from the fact that God will do the work. The power comes from God. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am actually strong. So this first feature of his gospel preaching is his deliverance of the gospel with humility, under duress, under opposition, and transparently. It says in verse 20, you yourselves know, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So any opportunity he had to tell them something of God that would help them grow, despite the fact that opposition would arise from it, he still gave it because it was edifying. It helped them grow in their faith. And as they grew in their faith, they were able to deal with the trials of life and become stronger themselves. And he was willing to give of himself this so that people would grow and profit. And he didn't just do it from the pulpit. He did it privately too. Teaching you in public and from house to house. Paul was careful to be personal in applying the things he said in a more uh, general setting. They could be, come off as more lofty when they're preached, right? These big, these concepts, these, uh, these applications. But then to come alongside the brothers and the sisters, he's telling the elders of the church, you have to walk alongside the brethren as they apply the word of God. From the pulpit, it could seem kind of high and lofty, but when it's taken personally, then it can be applied and really lived out. Both of these things are exemplified by Paul, and he's telling the elders so that they can see the effective witness that the apostle had. I love how Calvin comments on this. I think some caricatures of John Calvin may be that he just was kind of this high and lofty preacher. It's true. Someone pointed out to me after the first service, and I should know this because I saw it, um, he had a really high pulpit. Like, I'm scared of heights, and that pulpit he was in in the church that he preached, it was pretty high. I don't mean that. I mean more figuratively that the preacher could just be up there giving these, the, you know, this speech, and now you go all do it, you know, you commoners, go do the work, you know, and that kind of a thing. And that's not at all how he functioned in his ministry. I mean, there were limits because there were so many demands, but he saw very necessarily a personal application of pastoral teaching in the lives of people. On this passage, listen to what he says. I think it's very helpful. Um, he's talking about Paul. He says, He did not only teach all men in the congregation, but also everyone privately, as every man's necessity did require. For Christ hath not appointed pastors to only teach the church in general in the open pulpit, but that they take charge of every particular sheep. You'll be responsible for all you all individually as elders. And he uses the word pastor interchangeably with elder, and you understand how we see that elders are pastors. To take charge of every particular sheep, Calvin goes on, that they may bring back to the sheepfold those who wander and go astray, that they may strengthen those who are discouraged and weak, 
that they may cure the sick. He's talking about the prayers for the sick when we go to visit. That they may lift up and set on foot the feeble. For common doctrine, listen to this, for common doctrine sometimes will wax cold, meaning just preached, unless it be helped with private admonitions. By the way, that's a bit of our model for the home fellowship group. Uh, That's the model. That is, you go to your home fellowship group that's under an elder, at least a a flock with home fellowship groups, and then what you do in that time is go over the application of the sermon. That which is common, when I say it here, can be better applied more closely and more privately. As Paul prepares to bid farewell to Ephesus, he calls the elders' attention to his model of gospel declaration. It's humble, sacrificial, transparent, but also, please notice this, through Paul, the gospel was delivered boldly to everyone. Um, there is no discrimination about who should hear the gospel. If you're in a certain place, um, those are the people uh, that you should f- pray to the Lord to have opportunity to express the gospel. And of course, that's a, a message to the church first, that we should collectively discern how we might broadcast the gospel where he has placed us. Look at verse 21. Testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going forward and, and giving the message of the gospel. He starts with the Jews. We know that his usual mode is to go to the synagogues, but then it doesn't take usually too long, and they run him out of there. And then he preaches to the Greeks, which is usually synonymous with Gentiles. In Ephesus, these are the two major people groups, the Jews and the Greeks. And what does he testify? Of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, both to Jews and Greeks. This is to everyone. So in other words, he's not going to pause and think, I'll be in trouble if I preach this message to this group, which is true. He would be if he preached it to the Jews, if it be God's will. We've seen other times where God protected him when he preached to the Jews or to opposition, whether they be religious or not. But he's going to preach it to everybody, and that was, that's the example we have in him. That's what the Ephesian elders will remember. Yes, Paul didn't hesitate, whether it was the Jews or the Greeks, whatever, whoever, he declared the message with boldness, uh, without hesitation. You say, well, how is it bold? Well, just to go to that group that you know will oppose you is bold, but also the message, testifying of what? Repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever you preach a message, and the gospel message includes the message of repentance implicitly, and when I, when I say it that way, is you will often hear me say, what is the gospel? The gospel is we can be saved from our sins and made right with God by trusting in the finished work of Christ. But implicit in that is sins. You would have to agree that you're a sinner. And that would have to disgust you enough to want Christ. Both are the work of God in your heart to give you belief in Christ and repentance or the desire to turn from your sin. Um, he works these two things in us as we come to him. It's this acknowledgement of our sin and our need for God's deliverance, and it only comes through Christ. Both repentance and faith, while distinct, are very closely related, and God grants them both. And the message of the gospel includes those. I don't always say those words explicitly, but if I just say to you, you can be right with God by trusting or resting in Christ in his finished work, that's the gospel, but, but there's layers there. You know, what took Paul 12 to 14 hours to preach when Eutychus fell out of the window? He didn't just keep repeating that sentence. He unpacked the depth of Christ in the whole of the Scripture, what Christ's life was, what his sacrifice was, uh, what his resurrection means, what his commission. That could take hours and hours and hours, but we can still say simply what the gospel is, like we do, like we practice here even, in repeating it, saying it, knowing it. But here, 
he's giving the message of repentance. That, that's a bold message to suggest you have sinned that you've got to turn from. And that's what he does. I particularly appreciate the careful wording of our confession when it's teaching on faith and repentance because they're such important concepts. Um, in the confession of faith, or in our catechism, I should say, uh, the question and answer portion, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus is a saving grace. That means it has to be a gift from God, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. That's faith in Christ, a saving grace. It's, it's a work of the Lord in our hearts to make us lay hold of Jesus. What is repentance? In, the catechism says repentance unto life what, that leads to eternal life. And this is the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, so it's also the work of God in our hearts, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin and of the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it, not unto a, I'm going to go do better, turns from our sin unto God. Now from that place with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. It's turning from our sin and the odiousness of it to Christ and to a new endeavor through Christ. It's not from sin to a new endeavor. It's got to be to Christ and through Christ a new endeavor. That's how it works, faith and repentance. This is the message that Paul gives, and it's a bold one, and he preaches it to everybody. I also further like what Calvin says about these, the relationship between repentance and faith. He says, repentance and faith are so linked together that they cannot be separate. For it is faith which reconciles God to us, not only that, we may, we, that he may be favorable, favorable to us by acquitting us of the guilt, guilt, uh, guiltiness of death, by not imputing our sins to us, but also that by purging the filthiness of our flesh by his spirit, he may fashion us again after his own image. Listen further. He does not therefore name repentance in the former place as if it wholly goes before faith, forasmuch as a part thereof proceeds from faith and is an effect thereof. But because the beginning of repentance is a preparation unto faith, I call the, dis- I call the displeasing of ourselves the beginning, which doth enforce us after we be thoroughly touched with the fear of the wrath of God, to seek some remedy, and the remedy is Christ. I think this is why Paul puts the order the way he does. He's talking about the practical look of how a person comes, testifying of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus. Verse 22, and now behold, the boldness is still there. He's not going to stay in Ephesus any longer. Behold, I am going to Jerusalem. This would be the place where the, mo- the, the, the greatest concentration of his enemies would be in Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me. He doesn't know if that will be his end. But if he's going to go by the past, he knows what that might look like, verse 23. Except, I, this says, I don't know what waits me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He thinks this will be the last time he talks to the Ephesian elders and he wants to be realistic with them. I know God is compelling me, leading me to go to Jerusalem to preach there, to come back to that place. It's a very strategic place on the whole of the New Testament church. Uh, But I also know this could be the end. This is a bold deliverance, and it's an example to us and to the Ephesian elders that sometimes we have to bring the gospel in a place that will cost us dearly. And that boldness, it just reassures us that the message is right. The message is true. It's worth it. And that's what we see here exemplified as Paul heads towards Jerusalem after Ephesus. Finally, I want you to see uh, 
a feature of Paul's delivering the gospel that will also work to help us believe afresh and give us uh, an example to follow or a mission to emulate. Paul delivered the gospel as a mission with ultimate importance. Please hear me when I say that. He saw the gospel as a mission with ultimate importance. So now this extends beyond elders in the church. If the gospel itself is, uh, transcends this time, and it's more, it's more important than life itself on earth, then it's for every Christian. So there's something about what the gospel says and does that defines the whole of our life. Now, we have different livelihoods for sure, but you see that through a different lens as one who's been purchased by Christ, who one who knows eternal life is far greater than this short temporary life. So in that way, Paul's saying that the gospel in the preaching of that gospel, the, sh- the spreading of that gospel is a mission with ultimate importance. Collectively, we together can help carry out that mission. And it starts with recognizing its importance. And the way he describes it in verse 24 gives us that framework. Now, I'll spend next sermon, Lord willing, on just verse 24. So much here you'll see. But now see it in light of what he's trying to tell the Ephesian elders in order to, em- to en- empower them to follow suit. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. What's the, ministry, what's the course that God's given him that's more important than his life? What could that possibly be? The last part of verse 24, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I am willing to die in order to fulfill this mission. I only want to live long enough to complete the course, the race, the marked out trail that God's given me to follow and finish. My earthly life is not worth more than the message of Christ because he knew that earthly life is just a tiny portion of your existence. You will live forever and ever and ever elsewhere. And so, what happens or is determined in this short life, humanly speaking, is, is all about eternal purpose and, and importance. So for someone who knows the message, it's worth giving my life up for it so others that don't know it will know it. That's the beauty of the message that you see so, so clearly on display by the way he lives and teaches. That I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is the ultimate mission. This is what defines who we are as believers and certainly the mission of the church. It's the ageless mission of the church to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know, evangelical churches could have all sorts of different mission statements. We have one as well. But notice what should be in there somewhere. The mission of redeemers to mature as a community of Christians who love to worship their God, study his word, and what? Proclaim his gospel to the world. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is an ultimate, of ultimate importance. And it's our ageless mission. It happens formally, sure, from the pulpit and the ministries of the church, but it happens house to house. And it happens when members of the church are ambassadors for Christ and what he has come to do. Paul speaks of this as his mission in multiple places in his letters, but probably most vividly using the same kind of metaphor In Philippians, he says, not not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But those of us who are mature think this way. If you are past just becoming a believer, it's time to start thinking in terms of what God's called us to. You know, the scope of the church's mission is relatively narrow. It's to gather and perfect the saints. But the gathering of the saints has to do with the proclamation of the message. So let us stay very focused on this. And let us be careful to not become known for anything other than the gospel going forward per first. Now, individuals, you have liberty in how you are interested in this or that thing. But may the church never be associated with a political party. May the church never be associated with this or that cause as a primary. Now, we may be behind certain righteous causes. Absolutely, that's a fruit. But the church should be known for that gospel message it preaches. And trust me, as time goes on, that gospel message will be more offensive. It will be very exclusive because it's absolutely exclusive. It's very pointed. But that's what the world needs, even if it doesn't know. There has to be a mantle, a watchman, if you will, the church, to proclaim how they can be made right with God. And of course, a rebellious person or mankind will say, we don't need to be right with God. We are God. But we have to say to them, that's not right. They're not going to like that. And so we have to be known for the gospel message we preach. That's more important than anything else. So whatever it is that we engage in, let us always be sure that at the top of the heap, the thing that dictates everything else is the gospel of God's grace in Christ. That's who we are. That's what we're called to proclaim so that we gather and then perfect or see matured the saints of God to become a stronger witness wherever it is that God places us. He says in verse 25, Behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He's telling them very somberly, this is it. I mean, I, I'm going to either die shortly or I am going to have to travel further and further to proclaim this message. I will not be back to my beloved Ephesus again. So brothers, uh, uh, elders, overseers, bishops of the church, all Again, synonymous words for pastors in the church. Be mindful of this gospel that you are to be stewards of and what it will cost to deliver it and do so joyfully because it will have its impact. We're in Paul's introductory comments to his farewell. And maybe these last two verses, verse 26 and 27, could be, they might be the most important for us to lay hold of what he's saying. And also as a, as a bit of a, a goal to to meet, if you will. Look at verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. He just laid out four different phrases for preaching the gospel and how he endeavored to do it, boldly, humbly, transparently, with sacrifice to everyone. And now he says, therefore, in light of what I've modeled to you about the gospel, I am innocent of the blood of all. I thought, what does that mean exactly? Because that seems to be, like, who could claim that? Well, he's borrowing prophetic language from probably Ezekiel, of, of, of one of many prophets, who thought of themselves as watchmen, who were called to be mouthpieces for the warning to the people about God, that God's wrath is coming. And so the prophet would say, it's coming. Remember Isaiah, he was a watchman. He proclaimed it. And if people didn't listen, it wasn't on him because he didn't listen. He weeped over it like Jeremiah did, literally, but he still was a watchman. Listen to what it says in Ezekiel as this this metaphor is used. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel speaking, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land 
And the people of the land take a man from among them and make them their watchmen because they know the enemy's coming, so we put a watchman up. That's the prophet. And if the watchman sees the sword coming, the encroaching army, and blows the trumpet to everybody in the city and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning at that point, the sword comes and takes him away and his blood will be upon his own head. So now Paul says, Therefore, after I preach the gospel to everyone boldly, humbly, transparently, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. So there's a clearness of conscience that he has for obeying God's commission. Ezekiel, a watchman for God's wrath, told the people how to be saved. Paul was a watchman for God's wrath, told the people how to be saved through Christ. I've done everything humanly possible to make the gospel known and clear. And so, church, we should do everything possible to make the gospel known and clear. Kent Hughes said, Paul's approach was a commitment that produced a sense of well-being and clear conscience. And verse 27 closes this introduction, for I did not shrink, I did not hesitate, I did not, I did not stop or didn't allow anything to get in my way, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I preached to you Christ, no matter the cost. And I didn't stop if I thought opposition would come or wouldn't be received in a popular fashion. As John Stott summarizes it, Paul shared all possible truth with all possible people in all possible ways. Beloved, four times in this passage, Paul references the message he preached. We should be very clear on it. And he uses slightly different descriptions to say the same thing. It's a powerful message. It's a clear message about the gospel. How he delivered it and against certain opposition and through certain trials and challenges. That also compels us. It compelled the Ephesian elders to be strengthened in their belief and to follow Paul's example when Paul left so that they would shepherd the flock at Ephesus faithfully and translate it to us today. This powerful witness that we are reading of in the book of Acts and we are seeing Paul speak in this passage, this powerful witness of the apostles about Christ and the gospel, it should compel all of us to believe afresh and to follow in their mission. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we are certainly grateful for how much your word reveals We are entirely dependent upon your Holy Spirit to understand it and apply it. And I pray that that would be the case. That by your Spirit we would have very lucid understanding of your gospel. That it would compel us uh, to engage in the mission to see everybody uh, come to know how they may be right with you through Christ. And may your Spirit work as many as are appointed would indeed come to you. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.